This is KMTT and today's Thursday this Zman Choref Taf Shin Ayin will be having a series by Rav Kalmin Newman on society and halacha. Hello, this is the fourth session in our series on halacha and society, halacha and politics and we are continuing today our discussion of the mitzvah to appoint a king. Last time we mentioned a number of reasons why various poskim say that despite the fact that there is a mitzvah to appoint a king, as the Rambam specifically says, however, for various reasons, some of them technical, it is impossible today to perform the mitzvah. Today we will begin by mentioning the opinion of the Nitziv, Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, right, the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva of Elohim, at the end of the 19th century, who, in his commentary, Hameg Davar, has a very interesting take on this question. We have mentioned a number of times the unique nature of the description of appointing the king, which the Torah introduces by describing that the people will ask for a king. And again, as we have said, this led some opinions in Chazal and in the Rishonim to say that appointing a king is totally not a mitzvah, but rather only a response to the request of the people. However, according to those who say that there is a mitzvah to appoint a king, how are we to explain this unique description of performing a mitzvah? We don't have other mitzvot which are introduced by if the people want something, then you should do it. Litziv suggests as follows. Davarze, in other words, appointing a king, this thing, it cannot be done through the coercion of performing a mitzvah. Because matters of collective policy involved life-threatening situations which override positive commandments. Therefore, Mishum Hachi, Therefore, it is impossible to have a definite imperative to appoint a king. It is impossible to command the people to appoint a king until the people themselves have consented to it. Only then there is a mitzvah on the Sanhedrin to appoint a king. And I want to make the point of the Nativ clear because occasionally the opinion of the Nativ is presented as though the whole question of the political system is optional. That is not true. It is not optional according to the Nativ. There is a mitzvah to appoint a king. There is a mitzvah to have a monarchy. However, that mitzvah is dependent on the awareness of the people that the monarchy is best for them. And when they come to that conclusion then they are to ask for a king, and it is a mitzvah to establish a monarchy. However, if the people think that it is not better for them, and indeed, says the Nitziv, some states cannot tolerate a monarchic regime, in that case, the mitzvah is not incumbent on them. So I'm repeating. The opinion of the Nitziv is that there is a mitzvah. He does follow the Rambam. He doesn't reject the opinion of the Rambam. But he says that this is a unique mitzvah, that in order to perform this mitzvah, the people have to be convinced that the mitzvah is good for them. Regarding other mitzvah, we don't have such a condition. 
We don't have to believe that keeping Shatnes is good for us or that eating matzah on Pesach is good for us in order to perform the mitzvah. We have to perform the mitzvah as a command. And mitzvot, lav lehenot, the mitzvot were not given in order for us to derive benefit, worldly benefit from them. But the Nitziv is saying that in this specific mitzvah, there's a unique condition. The mitzvah cannot be performed properly and in, indeed can endanger the very existence of the people if it is not done out of a conviction that is indeed it is establishing a proper and stable political order. So therefore, the Nitziv has a unique opinion on this. Of course, it stands to reason that nowadays the practical conclusion of this would be, since most peoples don't have monarchies and the nations around us, or at least the nations we want to emulate, don't have monarchies, the mitzvah cannot be observed today, and even more so. An attempt to observe the mitzvah in these conditions would be self-defeating and could endanger the very existence of the state. It's not just a technical reason that the mitzvah is not incumbent on us, but rather it is a reason that destroys the very purpose of the mitzvah and makes the performance of the mitzvah in these conditions self-destructive. So here we've seen another example of an approach that does believe that basically there is a mitzvah of appointing a king. However, this mitzvah is not applicable today, and we've seen other a number of different reasons. Another halachic tactic could be taken would be to say that the mitzvah does not exist, that we follow the other opinions, not the opinion of the Rambam, but rather the opinion of some of the Gaonim, of the Eben Ezra, who say that the whole idea of a monarchy is just optional, or of course even to go as far as the opinion of the Barbanel, who says that the monarchy is a negative thing and just a concession of God in a situation where the people demand a king. This would be halachically a little far-reaching in rejecting the opinion of the Rambam and preferring opinions of authorities who usually aren't seen as major halachic figures. However, perhaps in these unusual conditions that we spoke about in our first meeting about the unusual nature of Hilchot Medina, this could perhaps happen. There are a number of statements of contemporary rabbis who say, well, the Torah doesn't have a specific political regime that it supports, Often they say that without justifying it. So I would say that they probably are, in a certain way, accepting the opinion that there is no mitzvah of minu melech, but if pushed to the wall, they could also accept the opinion that the mitzvah is technically not appropriate today, and that the performance of the mitzvah therefore has to be postponed till Yemotah Mashiach. Before finishing this topic, I would like to mention one other possibility. I would like to mention a strategy that I've heard mentioned a number of times, another idea in order to support the position why, uh, in fact, we don't insist that there be a king today. Uh, that strategy is to broaden the definition of a king in the context of mitzvah minoy melech and to say that a king, the halachic definition of a king for that purpose, would include a constitutional monarch and really any type of ruler. So Rambam, regarding the mitzvah, the Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Noach, one of the Noachide laws is dinim. That Noachides, non-Jews, have to have dinim. So at least according to the Rambam, the definition of dinim is they have to set up a legal system. It doesn't matter what legal system, but they have a mitzvah to set up a legal system. In the same sense, uh, that mitzvah of 
Minui Melech would mean, in effect, would be watered down. It would mean that the Jewish people have to establish a political regime of some type, right? It would mean that uh, it's prohibited to live in a Hobbesian state of nature, and one, the society has to create an organized polity. Of what type? That already depends on them. Uh, this argument seems to me rather unconvincing. First of all, the evidence from Tanakh and Chazan Levishonim seem to point to the fact that a king is a king. And, in fact, those were the political regimes that they were familiar with. Uh, in Tanakh, we know about the monarchies of Tanakh. Uh, Chazal were familiar with the Roman Empire, with the Sasanian Empire in Persia. Uh, the Mishonim were familiar with the medieval monarchies. They didn't imagine other types of regimes, but therefore when they spoke about regime, they spoke about kingship, and uh, they even justified kingship as a good regime, as we've so seen uh, in the Rambam, the Chinuch, and other Rishonim. So it seems uh, hard to accept that they took into account the possibility of another regime being equivalent to a monarchy. Perhaps one could make the claim that had they known that there are other possible regimes that are just as good, if not better than monarchy, they would have included it in the mitzvah. But to draw halachic conclusions from, from such a fact is definitely a daring halachic leap. And uh, even in the area of uh, politics and halacha, it is a leap that certainly uh, one should take great care to make such a extreme statement as saying that really uh, it's the Rishonim really should have said uh, any type of regime is good, and they did not do so only because of their ignorance of the advantages of other regimes. Having dealt with the mitzvah to appoint the king, we will now raise the question of the authority of the king. What is the status of the king? What are his legal powers? And should you ask, why deal with this topic? Once we have said that it is almost unanimous that there is no practical obligation to establish a kingship today, why should we be interested in the question of what would be the authority of a king? The answer to this is that even beyond the question of the mitzvah to appoint a king, there very well may be a regime that has the authority of a king. There is the famous statement of Rav Kook, that says exactly that, which we will discuss later. So first, in order to deal with that, we first have to establish what exactly are the powers of a king. And before we get to the question, does a another type of political system, could it inherit or could the powers of a king devolve to this other political system? The most important biblical text that raises the question of the powers of the king, in addition, of course, to the biblical descriptions in the Vim Rishonim about the actual historical kings and what they did. But as far as a programmatic description of the authority of the king, the most famous psukim and the most important psukim are in Shmuel Aleph, Perik Chet, Pasuk Yud, and An. In continuation of the issue of the request of the people from Shmuel to appoint a king, Shmuel tells them about what will happen when they have a king. This will be the practice of the king who will rule over you. 
He will take your sons and appoint them as his charioteurs and horsemen. And then he will appoint them as chiefs of hundreds and thousands. They will have to plow his fields, reap his harvest, make his weapons and his equipments for his chariots. He will take your daughters. He will take them as perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will size your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves, and give them to his courtiers. He will take a tenth part of your grain and vintage and give it to his servants. He will take your slaves, your choice young men, your donkeys, put them to work for him. He will take a part of, of your sheep, etc., etc. Then the question is, how are we to understand this description of Shmuel? Does it describe the legitimate actions of a king? And indeed, this really is what the king is allowed to do? Or is it part of a warning of the king? Shmuel is warning the people about what could be the negative, the downside, what are the dangers of a monarchy becoming such a tyranny? Precisely on this question, there is a machloket in Chazal, both in Tosefta Sanhedrin and in the Bavli, Dav Kafamudbed. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Kol Ha'amor Beparshat Melech, Melech Mutarbo, everything written in the description of the king is permitted for the king. Rabbi Yehud Omer, Okay, this description is only to warn them to create greater fear of the king, but indeed it is not permitted for the king to engage in this activity. The sugi is not too specific exactly uh, how to understand these two opinions. According to the opinion that that this, the description of Shmuel is in fact something that the king is permitted to do. Does that mean that the king has unlimited powers, can do whatever he wants, can he follow any whim? Again, from the sugi itself, it's not that clear. On the other hand, according to the other opinion, that the king is not given the powers mentioned by Shmuel, uh, what nevertheless are his uh, abilities? Uh, what uh, legal uh, powers does he have? So again, this is left open and partly uh, dealt with by the Rishonim. Uh, maybe we'll continue by raising a question that is raised by the Rishonim in the context of the story, the famous story of Kerem Navot. The story in the end of Malachim Aleph, Parak of Aleph, of a vineyard that belonged to Navot HaYisraeli, Navot from Yisrael, the king of the time, the king of Shamron, Achav wished to have his vineyard, the king approached Navot, Achav approached Navot and said, Tnali et karmecha, v'yeligan legan yarak, ki hu karov etzel beti, v'etna lecha tachtav kerem tov mimenu, im tov beinecha etna lecha kesef mechirzeh. King Ahav said, I'd like to have your vineyard because it, it would be good to have it close to home. It's right near to my house. It would be very convenient for me. 
and I'll give you in exchange a better vineyard, or I'll pay you in money. Navod uh, refuses the offer, and the uh, sad end of the story is that uh, Izevel, the wife of Achav, finds a trick by which Navod is ultimately put to death. As a result of the execution, uh, the king has the ability to take hold now of the vineyard, and that evokes the famous response of Eliyahu, Can you indeed murder and also inherit the vineyard? The story of Karim Navar, of course, has much food for thought to offer us on questions of power and the limits of power and uh, what is the corrupting influence of power. But that, of course, is not our topic now. We're talking about the halacha, and from a halachic point of view, a number of Yisholim raised the question, why did Achav not have the power just to confiscate the vineyard, especially according to the opinion that Kol Ha'amor B'Parashat HaMelech, Melech Mutarbo. Here Shmuel said that the king can confiscate fields uh, for his purposes. So, well, so why, therefore, was it not okay for Achav to do exactly that? The question ra- is raised uh, both in uh, some of the classical Mephoshim and in uh, the Rishonim, both on the Daf and the Rambam. For instance, Abar Benel, not surprisingly, says, Oh, you see, uh, Achav himself was aware of the limitations of a king because we really think that it, since the king is not such a good idea in the first place, so even when the Torah allowed Am Yisrael to have a king that did not allow him to have this kind of carte blanche to confiscate property of people. Right? So the Parbanel uses this as a support for his approach. But we find the same question among uh, Balea Tosfod. Uh, it appears in Tosfod, uh, there in Sanhedrin, Davkaf Hamod Bet, Melech Mutar. I'll read, I think, from the Hagahom Maimoniod, which is also, of course, a work of Baleatosvot, because there the specific Baleatosvot mentioned are identified by name, whereas in the Tosvot printed in the Gemara, it's anonymous. So I'm reading from the Hagaot Maimoniot, Hilchot Malachim, Perik Dalid, Halachavav. Umashin enash achav al sdeinavot, merabenu tam, the first uh, answer is that is, is in the name of Rabbeinu Tam that the permission of the king to confiscate fields is for the benefit of his servants and not for his own benefit. Obviously, Rabbeinu Tam means to say when it's done for the benefit of the servants, it's done for the uh, benefit of the country. It's done as part of the function of the king as responsible for the country. Part of his needs as king are his servants who help him fulfill the functions of office. And if in order to do that there's a need to confiscate a field, or in this case a vineyard, that is sufficient. That's a good enough reason. That seems to be the answer of, of Rabbeinu Tam. As I mentioned before, when the king, Achav, comes to Navod and tries to justify why he needs this vineyard, he doesn't say, I need this vineyard because 
it will serve a national purpose, it will help me function better as a king. He said, no, it will just be convenient, it's next door, it's right in my backyard, I can, you know, drop in whenever I want and pick some grapes. Now, this is totally to supply the personal needs of the king. And Rabbi Tam seems to say that Parshat HaMelech does not include the right of the king to confiscate property just in order to fulfill his personal needs. In other words, it has to be for the purpose of the kingdom and not for the king as a person. The second answer uh, basically says that indeed the king did have the right to confiscate it. However, since he offered Navot to buy it from him, he already uh, relinquished his right to confiscate it. He, he offered it to Navot uh, on the basis of selling it. Selling it, Navot didn't want to sell if you're already leaving it up to me, so I don't want any part of it at all. That's the second answer, which assumes that indeed Achav had the authority to uh, confiscate it if he wished, even without having to pay back. The third answer in, in uh, Hagol Memonion, Barav Shimon Mianvil, Piresh Davka Melech Alko Yisrael Mutar. It depends on which type of king we're talking about. Achav was the king, as we know, of the northern ki- kingdom, right, of Machod uh, Shamron. In this case, this Balei Toshod, Reb Shimon says that such a king, a king who is not the total king of all the kingdom, does not have these far-reaching rights of Prashad HaMelech. Prashad HaMelech only refers to the archetypical king who is the king of Kol Yisrael, and not the king who is part of a divided kingdom. And the fourth answer is brought in the Hagot Maimonyot name of Rav Vardimas. He quotes Rav Vardimas that Ein mutar ela bizdot lekuchim aval nachlat avotav lo. In other words, that the specific right mentioned by Shmuel that the king will confiscate people's fields. It's talking about general people who, someone who happens to own a field, not someone, not a field that has gone you know, through the generations in the family. That's something that it's to be understood that a person could have such a deep, deep connection to, right, as an evidence, of course, in the laws of Yovel. The fact that a person is so connected to that it's really nachalat avotav, that is not included in the right of the king. Okay. So if we compare these four answers, actually, according to three out of the four, at least theoretically, the king does have the power to arbitrarily confiscate a field belonging to a person, and the problem with the story of Karim Navo was some kind of technicality. Even Either we say that Ahav was not an absolutely 100% qualified king, and therefore the Parashat HaMelech does not apply to him, but it could apply to another king who would be the king of all of Israel. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that there's a technical problem, that this isn't exactly the type of field that the Pasuk and Shmuel refers to, or uh, that uh, he f- did not insist on confiscating it, he offered him money, and therefore the rule did not apply. But in general, according to the last three answers, indeed the king can uh, take control of a field belonging to someone, even without necessarily having uh, a national need 
for, for doing this, although, again, however, according to the first answer, there's a very clear distinction between things that the king does as king, right, for the kingdom, in his role as king, or things that he does as a private person. Right, A private person does not have the right to insist that someone give up his vineyard, and the fact that you happen to be the king is irrelevant. Right? There's a famous book about medieval political thought called The King's Two Bodies. Right? The king actually has two functions, or he exists both as a private person and as a public person. What we quoted till now are the opinions of the Baleatosfot. A curiosity, I would mention that Rebbe Weger, there in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, brings another source that raises the question of the actions of Achav versus Navod in the context of Parashat HaMelech. That is a surprising source. He quotes the Zohar. The Zohar at the end of Parashat Vayeshev, in Daf Kuf Taribet, 182, in the standard editions of the Zohar. And the Zohar asks the same question. Right. Why was Achav punished? Because it's a law of the Torah that Shmuel presented to the people that the king is allowed to take the fields. So how come the king had the right to take the field of Navod? The same question of the Tosfot. I'm not a big expert on the Zohar. It seems to me that the conclusion of the Zohar, after a digression and that is Kabbalistic in nature, and he says that Navod wasn't such a great tzaddik, and he comes to the conclusion that the punishment of Achav was not because he wanted to take the field, but because he had Navod killed uh, without due process. Al de katile below dina itanesh. So that's the Zohar, again, just as a aside regarding the issue of Navod. The Rambam is clear on this issue. In Perik Dalet Halachavav, of Hilchot Malachim, he says, "V'lokeach hasadot v'hazetim v'hakramim la'avadav k'sheyelchu la'milchama v'yifshetu al mekomot elu im ein lahem ma yochlu elam misham v'notent mehem." And he takes the fields and the olives and the orchards for his servants when they go to war and they can take over these places if they have nothing to eat, but from there, and he pays money. And then he quotes the Pasuk from Parashat al-Melech, from the words of Shmuel, Shneemar, ve'etz dotechem, et karmechem, ve'etzetechem hatovim ikach, ve'natan la'avadav. So Rambam, first of all, limits this to an emergency situation of war, only when there's a dire need, there's no other place to eat for the servants of the king, and it has to be compensated. This is what he sees as Parashat HaMelech. In general, Rambam specifically says that Kol HaOmor BeParashat HaMelech, Melech Zochebo, that he says in the beginning of Perik Dalit, but he has a very clear idea of what is Parashat HaMelech. Parashat HaMelech are things that the king does out of necessity, in order to fulfill his role as a king, because one of the major roles of a king is waging war. As a matter of fact, when the people asked Shmuel for a king, they said, They saw the function of the king specifically as someone whose role is to wage war, and therefore, 
as part of his responsibility to wage war, he has the authority to confiscate people's uh, fields. This is not limited to war alone. Again, in the beginning of Perak Revi, Rambam begins the Perak by saying, Rushut yesh melech liten mas al ha'am litzrachav o litzorech hamilchamot. The king has the power to impose taxes on the people for his needs or for the needs of the wars. And then again he quotes the uh, continuation of the Pasuk in Shmuel, Shneemar, Vatem Tiulo La Avadim. Ulahalan Huomer, Yulahalamas Vavaducha. The notion of that all the people should be your servants has to do with the ability, the power to tax the people. And uh, the Rambam adds, he says, either for his purposes or for the purposes of war. Many of the Akharim understand that Litzrachav uh, in this context doesn't mean his personal needs just like we saw in the first answer of the Tosla, but rather for the needs of the kingdom, for the needs of the king to uh, fulfill his role as a king. Of course, one of the questions we'll have to ask, first of all, is this totally arbitrary? Uh, is the, can the king actually do uh, whatever he wants? Is he limited by certain rules? We will examine that question as we go on. Today, just to repeat, we've mentioned the authority of the king regarding confiscation of property, regarding taxation, and uh, we have yet to talk about the question of the king as a legislator, can the king uh, legislate new laws, and can the king impose punishments, and especially capital punishments, that's something that we will talk about in the future. This also has to do with the relationship between the authority of a king in halacha, of a Jewish king, as reflected in Pashat HaMelech, and the rule of Dina de Machuta Dina, which we know is a rule formulated first in Bavel, and a rule that applies to non-Jewish kings. To what extent is there overlap or connection or relationship between the laws governing Jewish kings and the laws governing non-Jewish kings?